How much shock can you take? complete a double night of horror, a monstrous nightmare of terror, turn loose in a fight to the death. It could only be shown at midnight. episode goes out and you're listening to it we have a week until the most holy of holy days the day that we celebrate everything monster that we celebrate everything spooky the day that i look forward to above all other days of the year i'm talking about halloween it's happening in a week from now i'm looking forward to it so much and not just because it's halloween and it's the best day ever but because after halloween then I sleep. Anyway, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. This is episode 442 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to the show. And this song that you're listening to right now, it is from the Gino Royd experience. It is called Calling Dr. Gang Green. And we're playing it because... Dr. Gang Green is coming back to Monster Kid Radio. We're going to talk about one of his favorite types of films when we talk about the amicus film from Beyond the Grave. This one, man, it's a fun conversation. It's always great talking to Larry. I mean, Dr. Gang Green, one of my favorite horror hosts, one of the hardest working horror hosts out there. And to have him take some time with us here on MKR, I mean, that means a lot pretty darn special so thank you larry for doing this i think the guys and gals here in the monster Kid radio audience are going to dig the conversation but that's not all we've got this time around no in the grand comic book tradition monster kid radio is doing a crossover yeah we're crossing over with the disney indiana podcast this week last weekend if you listen to disney indiana you heard me join the show when tracy and scott morris had me on to talk about a comic book, a graphic novel featuring Donald Duck and Frankenstein. Oh, okay, actually, technically it was Franken Duck. We talked about this graphic novel, this Disney take on the classic Frankenstein story, and had so much fun that we continued the conversation by talking about Disney's take on Dracula, starring Mickey Mouse. We're going to talk about that in this episode of Monster Kid Radio as well. And of course, we've got all the regular segments. We've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Professor Frenzy sent me an email earlier today saying time for bed because he sent me a new bedtime story. And of course, Dr. Tongue's world of monster collectibles. And before we get into the rest of the show proper, I just want to say thank you to everybody who reached out to me regarding the whole cord cutting thing. I kind of vented a little bit in last week's episode about my frustrations with Comcast and how they just decided to arbitrarily add Turner Classic Movies to the sports and entertainment package making it harder to watch my classic monster movies and sometimes not monster movies. And, you know, while I did deal with that and I do now have access to Turner Classic Movies and it's actually cost me less than it was before, I still may down the line end up cutting the cable. And so many of you had so many great suggestions about different services that you use. Rest assured that when it is time for Monster Kid Radio to finally cut the cord and tell Comcast it can go away... I'll be reaching out to you for your advice. 
I'm sure there's more I want to talk about here at the beginning of the show, but uh, you're not here to just listen to me ramble. You're here for the conversations and the Monster Kid stuff that everybody else is bringing to the show. So why don't we go ahead and get to that right after this. This is Asylum of the Incurably Insane. Asylum, the ultimate in horror. Asylum, the prison of madness, where few enter and none return. Asylum, filled with stark raving terror from Robert Block. Author of Psycho. <laughs> See Asylum. You have nothing to lose but your mind. Asylum from Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. to one of these murders and he's out of his mind. Didn't you get any sense out of him? No. Oh, he's raving about some sort of creature. Joe, <laughs> can you tell me what happened? <laughs> it was a horrible creature, sir. With huge eyes, sir. Oh, with the wings. The wings, sir. Oh, let me alone. Let me alone. From this old house, some evil thing was spawned to bring terror to the surrounding countryside. What was Professor Manninger's gruesome secret? And how was his beautiful daughter involved? Look at that moon. Does it make you feel romantic? I don't need the moon to make me feel romantic. No, no! <laughs> First you've got to catch me. The Blood Beast Terror. Peter Cushing, Robert Fleming, Wanda Ventum, guest star Roy Hudd. What could have caused those injuries, Doctor? They could have been inflicted by some sort of animal. Now, John Gat's been missing for a week. <laughs> what kind of monster lived in this prison? What kind of creature brought terror to a whole community? <laughs> Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. 
My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Beneath the Streets. It is from The Haunt of Fear, number 17, the September-October issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Al Feldstein. So sit back and relax while I tell this completely historically accurate tale. In the wee hours of the night, Al Feldstein and Bill Gaines complete the latest issue of their romance comic book, Modern Love. They head out into the dark and empty streets together. The pair discuss starting a new line of horror comics. Who knows, would anyone even like them? Al realizes that someone is following them. They pick up their pace, but still the shadowy figure is in pursuit. They turn down a dead-end alley. What will they do? Luckily, there's an open manhole with a ladder leading down below the street. They scramble down the ladder and pull it down with them so they can't be followed. The figure laughs a wicked laugh and closes the manhole. They hear the figure's footsteps walking away and try to get up the manhole, but it is stuck shut. The two descend into the sewers, knee-high through the muck and goo. Suddenly, Al cries out, something creepy is under his foot. Bill lights a match, and they find a floating dead body. They race deeper into the underground tunnels, terrified. Al sees a light up ahead. He makes for it, but Bill needs a moment to rest. Suddenly, the wall opens up and grim hands grab Bill around the face. When Al turns around to call for his friend, Bill is gone. As Al runs down the tunnel, he turns a corner and he comes face to face with a gruesome old man that calls himself the Keeper of the Vault of Horror. Bill has met someone too. He calls himself the Keeper of the Crypt of Terror, and he has a proposition for him. When the two men finally meet up, they realize they both have signed contracts to create horror comics that will be hosted by this gruesome twosome. As they try to leave the sewers, they run into the person that was following them up on the street. It is the old witch, and she only lets them out when they agree to give her a book too, The Haunt of Fear. They were so terrified, they stuck to their part of the bargain, and I'm glad they did. The end. I hope you enjoyed that meta-thriller. I don't know how great a story this was. I was too distracted by my own laughter. Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein create an hysterical origin for their three horror magazines. But there are chills and thrills here and there. The menace of being followed on a lonely New York street is real. And gross underground sewers, dead bodies, and three ghosts of Christmas nevermore. Sure, there was no gruesome ending or morality tale. Just a good bit of fun. The backgrounds were fairly simple, lots of bricks, both on the street and in the sewer. The real artistic focus is on the two comics execs. If you look at the art here and view old photos of the real Bill and Al, you can see a wonderful resemblance. It looks like Feldstein enjoyed this particular assignment very much. I did too. If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. 
I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. American International presents The Land That Time Forgot, an astounding motion picture based on the book by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Travel through an underwater passage and discover an awesome prehistoric world. Fight for your life against the terrifying creatures of a lost continent. It's action, danger, and adventure on an epic scale. The land that time forgot. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Screams of pure terror will be torn from your throat when you see the most fearsome females in horror history together on the same show in the double evil shock hits. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Twins of Evil they were, one who used her beauty for love and one who used her lure for blood. But which twin was the victim and which was the vampire? A whole town becomes the prey of the diabolical daughters of the devil in Twins of Evil. Hands of the Ripper reach out and gory terror stalks the streets. The hands of Jack the Ripper live again as his fiendish daughter kills again and again and again. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Twice the spine-chilling, heart-stopping terror. From Universal Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. If you rebuild it, build it they will come. They burned it down. If you rebuild it, build it they will come. You didn't hear them? Beg your pardon? The voices? People? If you rebuild it, build it they will come. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, build it they will come. They demolished it. If you rebuild it, build it, they will go. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The house of Frankenstein lives. You see, uh, we began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately it was, it was interrupted. And we're most anxious to take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition, covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, Vampirus. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. Are you crazy? Jack Nicholson. Oh. Just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's uh, see what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor of medicine, law, and physics. To the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screams at the scenic House of Frankenstein. 
where terror is only a listen away. I've got two of my favorite Disney fanatics here on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. If you listen to their podcast, Disney Indiana, you know that I was just over there talking about a Disney comic book and I can't get enough of it. I want to talk about more Disney comics. I want to talk about them with my friends, Scott and Tracy Morris. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Welcome back. Been a little while. Thanks for having us back on, Derek. Yeah, I've been on injured reserve for a while, but I'm back. Okay, good. You're off the bench. Off the bench, yes. <laughs> as long as it wasn't a Dr. Frankenstein that stitched you back together, I think we're good. I mean, it'd be, be really good if he did. I don't know. I had to save a few bucks, and he was cheap. You know the phrase, cost you an arm and a leg? Well, Oh, you went there. I, it was it was there in my I was like, should I sit? No, I'm not going to make that joke. Nope. Okay. What are we talking about? We're talking about comic books. Uh, we don't talk about comics enough here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm a recovering comic book fan. Uh, you know, I used to read comics nonstop as a kid, and I'm slowly getting back into it. Got the YouTube channel going and all that for my comic book stuff, uh, which I did not mention when I was on Disney Indiana. Maybe I can ask Scott and Tracy to mention it in their show notes or whatever. Uh, but I've got the Comic Stalger YouTube thing, and I have been really enjoying getting back into comics. And I stumbled across some Disney comics where they adapted classic literature. Please bear with us if we're kind of repeating some information you might have heard on the Disney Indiana side of this crossover. But there were seven books that were published by Dark Horse Comics here in the States, probably adapted uh, from some original Italian comics, where they took the Disney characters to tell these stories of classic literature, like Hamlet, Moby Dick, Treasure Island, and the two stories that we're talking about with Scott and Tracy, Frankenstein and Dracula. And we talked about Frankenstein over in Disney Indiana, and that was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me over there, guys. That was our pleasure, and thanks for having us over here. And we talked about how they turned Donald Duck into the Frankenstein character to tell us the story of Frank. Was it? It was Duckenstein by Mary Shell Duck. Is that right? That is correct. Where they, for lack of a better term, I, maybe sanitized isn't really the right word here, but they did adapt it, kind of Disneyized some of the more gruesome elements of what you would see in a Frankenstein story. You don't see anybody digging up corpses and stitching things together. And Frankenstein's not hanging out with the doctor on his wedding night. You know, you don't see any of that stuff, which is great, which is good because I don't need to see Disney doing that. Um. <laughs> and, and they also do kind of stretch the animation part of Frankenstein to fit into the Disney verse. I love that. Oh, I did too. We, we talked about that over on Disney Indiana. That was awesome really made sense and felt very Disney-like. For Dracula, um, not, not as successful. And I was a little worried they were going to go there a little bit more than they would have in the Frankenstein story. And by go there, I mean the Van Helsing character is running around with a wooden stake. What is he going to do with a wooden stake in a Disney story? <laughs> I have no idea, but I was a little concerned we were going to see something terrible. But that joke paid off awesomely, though. It, it did. It did. There seemed to be more jokes, more yuck yucks in this Dracula than the Frankenstein. Now, we talked a little bit over on Disney Indiana about who the creative teams were. And I'm going to make you go back to listen to Disney Indiana to hear a little bit about that. Just diving right into the Dracula story. This is billed as Dracula as opposed to Duckenstein by Mary Sheldick. This is just flat out Dracula. And our Harker character is portrayed by Mickey Mouse. And what, what is he? He's Ratker. Is that right? Jonathan Ratker of Mousetz, Beatsylvania. And right off the bat, we're getting clued into what 
the real vampiric threat is <laughs> with that. And I didn't get it at first. I was trying to figure out why is it Beatsylvania? I don't understand. It's because beets are a thing. Yes, if you are not a fan of root vegetables, this adaptation may not be for you. <laughs> That's not true. I'm not a fan of root vegetables, and I enjoyed this. <laughs> so Mickey Mouse is our Harker character. Uh, Pete is going to be our Renfield character, but he doesn't show up until much, much, much later in the book. And, you know, I'm just going to skip ahead to my favorite character in this whole thing. Goofy is Van Helsing. <laughs> yes! I really thought, I thought you were going with Clara Cowbell in this. No, I know... I, I know you're a fan of Clara Cowbell. I'm actually more a fan of Horace Horsecaller than Clara Cowbell. I mean, I like the more obscure Disney characters. I, it's just who I am, a weirdo. I like the more obscure stuff, and I've always liked Horace. I, Horace is a big favorite of mine. But it's Goofy is Van Helsing. Yes, specializing in supernatural events and vegetables. <laughs> and he ends almost every word bubble with, Yeah! <laughs> yeah and when questioned it's the only german word he knows so he says it all the time despite the fact that he's dutch yeah <laughs> i i honestly have a hard time now like who is my favorite van helsing i <gasps> oh no <laughs> <laughs> oh no i did i i loved goofy as van helsing too oh he's but... amazing <laughs> <laughs> And how did he learn all this stuff about supernatural beats? Well, he worked in a fruits and vegetables stand growing up. It was, just... was yes, yeah, supernatural fruits and vegetables. Yep. <laughs> well, let's back up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, please do, because I'm stuck on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, as with the Frankenstein adaptation, this Dracula adaptation is based on the original novel. So there are characters that never really made it to most of the movie adaptations. And the story starts off more or less the same. You know, Jonathan Ratker is going to the Count's castle to meet with him to discuss purchasing land in England. Or in Beatsylvania, in this case. Right. And as with the Frank, the Frankenstein adaptation, our main character is kind of an original character. We have Count Vlad III of the Phantom Blot. Now, there is a Disney reference in his name. There was a video game that came out a few years ago called Epic Mickey that actually paired Mickey and Oswald together. And you did battle against the Phantom Blot. So we're we're really? thinking that this is this is a reference to the Epic Mickey video game. Interesting. And Oswald being Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which was the first creation that really had real mainstream success with Walt Disney. He predates right. Mickey. Yes, he's the one that they lost to Universal for a long time. For a long time. Yeah, and they traded him back for like a was it an NBA star? Is that right? Uh, an NFL broadcaster. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Whatever works. Well, I didn't know that. I was going to ask if he had any Disney roots. Interesting. Okay. I get it. Disney roots. Huh? Uh. Uh. <sighs> so we also meet some of our other characters fairly early on in the novel. We have Minina Murray, played, of course, by Minnie Mouse. Mm -hmm. And we already referenced Clara Cowbell, who is Clara Lucia Westerna of Ratby. <laughs> 
they are really laying it on thick with the the mouse naming conventions in this. You really lay it on thick. Yeah. Now you mentioned we have Peg like Pete appearing as the Renfield character, Pete Pegfield. <laughs> but there's a and this was one of the spots where Scott stopped and he's like, wait a minute. I don't recognize these characters. Are they, where are they from? They're from the novel. So these were the Clara's other suitors. Okay. And I was going to ask Scott about this because we brought it up when we were talking about Frankenstein. Scott, have you seen Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula? No, I have not. Okay. I, again, I'm familiar with the Universal and Hammer versions of Dracula. You do see these characters in the Bram Stoker's version. Mm-hmm. So you do see them there. In other versions, you might see, like, Seaward might be referenced in a couple here or there. Maybe that character gets transposed with another character. But, yeah, for the most part, you don't normally see all the suitors in a Dracula film. So to see them here was kind of nice. And in the novel, one of them is a rootin' tootin' shootin' Texan type. Yeah, that was the big one that threw me off. Was the, was the Texan. I don't remember who plays him in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but they even have like an American style guy playing him, whereas like Carrie Elwes is another one of the suitors. And yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I liked that. I liked that they actually referenced that too. It was nice. So the, again, it, it's, the story follows the novel fairly closely. We have the suitors. We have Minnie and Clara interacting. And then there's the, yeah, the... Dracula traveling across the sea, you know, the, the ship, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if you noticed the ship was named the Dementor instead of the Demeter from the original novel. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I thought that was interesting to see uh, see that. Uh, the Demeter being the, the ship in the novel and in some versions of the film being the ship that brings Dracula from where he's at to england or wherever he's got to go with coffins full of coffin dirt they did keep that element and i like that they tied that into the beets thing that yes. you know native soil you know to plant the beets in i like that well i'm sure there are several people out there wanting to know what beets have to do with this story we've mentioned beets several times and one of the things that the story does instead of a person turning into a bloodsucker they basically start to turn into someone who craves all sorts of beats. And it starts with Clara, of course. <laughs> so she starts craving beats. She's craving beats and is <laughs> in this weird kind of comatose slash hypnotically induced state where she's just laying in bed repeating different dishes with beats in them. Just over and over and over again. And to go back to something I just said a second ago, and I only bring this up because I know Scott will appreciate this. Billy Campbell plays the Texan in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So ah. it's the Rocketeer. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is when I was reading this for the first time and they start talking about all the, all the beats and everything, I had a flashback to when I was growing up and when I was probably two, three, four years old. And this was a family story that my mom loved to tell about me. We would go out to dinner and my mom loved beets. Pickled beets. Pickled beets especially. But every time she would get a salad from any restaurant, she'd get beets on them. And every time she would put one on her fork and get ready to eat it, I would my eyes would light up and I would like reach for it with my hands. 
And so they thought that I wanted them. So she would put one on my tongue, and as soon as it hit my tongue, I'd spit it back out and go, bleh. <laughs> so I, I started reading through this. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I was turning into a beat vampire at one point. <laughs> Beats, blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do like that this Disney adaptation of Dracula I mean, bloodsuckers do get mentioned because they do reference tax collectors at one point. <laughs> I thought that was cool, too. Yeah. <laughs> but instead of bloodsuckers, these people turn into into people that really crave beets. And I also half wondered if that was the instead of bats, they were beets. I was making oh, that reference in my mind, too. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, but we do see the Dracula character turning into a bat and a wolf and an ostrich. Okay. It's been a while since I've read the novel. He doesn't do that in the novel, right? (laughs) The ostrich, I don't remember either. I I don't remember that at all. (laughs) Now we do, do have the bride of brides of Dracula characters represented from the novel. We find out Menina, goes to Jonathan, who has been left over in Dracula's home castle. He finally has escaped it because there were the three women that were cohorts of Dracula that were forcing him to eat beets. I like that, too, because in in the original novel and in some of the films, it's implied that it's, you know, the, the women have seduced Jonathan Harker and are using him for, well blood as well as other things in this it's more of a you know we're forcing them to eat beets and later on it's actually even presented as if they're like three waitresses bringing food out and, and forcing them on Minnie and when Minnie has a problem with it she's like oh maybe we should just get her her check and leave you know so I, I liked that too <laughs> a nice way to kind of tame that down and make it more Disney friendly exactly but I feel like there are some things in here that man they could have gone a little bit more gruesome than than I think I was ready for. I'm glad they didn't. Like I said, I'm glad the stake didn't become a thing. When they introduced the stake and the hammer, I was a little concerned. Like, oh, what are they, like, are they going to reveal it's really a shovel and they're digging something up? No. They use it later, and I liked that, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of expected there to be like a, a, a vegetable peeler or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To feed them with. I'll tell you the one thing that I liked the most, though, when it came to disnifying anything about Dracula. It's what Pegfield is obsessed with. In the original yes. novel, he eats flies and bugs and things like that. But flies are kind of the thing. Flies, flies, you know. In this, it's not flies. Should we say? Do we want to ruin? Yeah, I kind of have to because I brought it up. They're files. <laughs> he loves <laughs> files. Files. I love files. I use files yeah. for this. And he uses the files to break out of the the home for, what was it, wayward sailors or something like that? Yes. Sailors that have lost their wits. Yes. <laughs> So he uses the files to break out. I love that. <laughs> I like the fact that he had to be taught how to use the file to break out of there. At first, he just had the files. Well, Pete's not that bright a character, <laughs> well, even in yeah. the Disney world. His character is not as prominent in this as he is in other versions of the Dracula story, whether it's the original novel or other film adaptations. He doesn't really turn up until at least the second half. We really don't even see him for a long time. I think we only are introduced to him because they put Minnie in the same 
a home for sailors who have lost their wits or whatever. Yeah, I was a little surprised that they didn't bring him in earlier either. But then again, I'm I'm not sure how they would have and kept the whole storyline going. Right. I thought it was interesting, especially after reading the Frankenstein adaptation. In that one, it stars Donald Duck, if you haven't listened to our talk about that one already. And almost all of the characters in that are different species of birds. There's ducks, there's chickens and everything. But here we've got mice, we've got cattle, we've got whatever Pete is, whatever Goofy is. Well, I think that goes back to the characters that each one of our main roles is played by. Donald Duck, most of the characters associated with him are fellow ducks. Whereas with Mickey Mouse, he's associated with Clara. He's associated with Goofy. He's associated with Horace and Minnie. So it makes more sense. And they didn't bring Donald in because he's got this whole other novel of his own. And we didn't get Pluto. Yeah, I, that's what I was about to say. We don't get Pluto. I was, yeah, I was going to say Pluto doesn't show up in either of these. There are a couple of iconic Disney characters of this era, of this repertoire that did not show up in either Frankenstein or Dracula. Pluto being one of them, Chip and Dale don't make an appearance at all. That's not to say they don't turn up in any of the other installments in this series, and they very well could. But, you know, I, I like I like Pluto, you know? It would be cool to see Chip and Dale in there somehow. But, but how do you do it? Yeah, how would you have fit Pluto into this story? Because Pluto is a non-speaking character in the cartoons. And Jonathan Harker didn't have a dog in the book. Right. right. So as we've already mentioned, Van Helsing gets brought in to help treat Clara. Yes. And they do use the garlic. So they carry that over. And in fact, at one point, Van Helsing says garlic and beets is like cats and ducks. (laughs) I love that Van Helsing keeps referring to like the woman with the big nose, the woman with the big nostrils. Minnie is the person with the big ears. Just, I, I love it. I love Goofiest Van Helsing. He's one of my favorite. I'm with you, Scott. He's one of my favorite Van Helsings. Now, yeah. <laughs> now, again, I'm only familiar with the Dracula story as it appears in the movies. And so I don't remember too much. Does Van Helsing go and put garlic in all of the coffins that have the, the earth or the dirt that Dracula needs to sleep? Is that something from the original book? Garlic is a traditional element and it, I mean, in the, man, I don't remember in the novel. I know they desecrate the coffin, or I guess. Well, not, I know in the Hammer film, they put garlic in the windows to keep yeah. the Dracula from coming into the bedroom. I'm, I'm doing a quick scan of the Dracula, the Wikipedia article on the Dracula novel, and it does mention Van Helsing prescribes garlic flowers to be placed throughout Lucy's room, weaves a necklace of withered garlic blossoms for her to wear. So we've got that. Oh, no, in the coffins, as they discover each of the box graves, they place um, wafers of sacramental bread. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, again, I can see why Disney would kind of want to shy away from those kinds of references as well. Plus, they've already introduced the garlic. Yeah. I I like that idea. I I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah. Now that you mention it, you're right. They didn't even have holy water, did they? No, they did not, or or any of the religious symbols to scare off a vampire. Interesting. Especially for a comic that was probably originally published in Italy. Very strong Roman Catholic population there. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But that might have been a 
a Disney thing, a decision to stick with garlic and wooden steak, maybe. Well, remember, these aren't vampire bats. These are vampire beets, and maybe those things don't work on them. So you're saying beets are atheists? Yes, beets are atheists. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So as you've probably gotten the gist, this adaptation is a little, for lack of a better term, sillier. Or perhaps goofier. Goofier, yes, than the... Frankenstein adaptation. I jotted down a couple of my favorite little comedic moments or just kind of clever moments. I think it was Mickey says, did someone just shout no in the distance? That happens a lot around here. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a little more fourth wall breaking. Another another one, this was um, Van Helsen saying, I love epistolary novels. Yeah. They allow many explanations and skipping of time. That is my favorite part of this entire reading experience. Uh, we talked a little bit about this over on your guys's podcast about how Frankenstein seemed to be a little bit more straightforward, whereas Dracula does bounce around a lot because of the different narrators and different points of view. I love that Van Helsing is here to give words to the thoughts we're having about how this story is being presented. I love that. It's clever and funny. Yes. He definitely broke the fourth wall a few times while reading through this, and, and I liked that. There was several times it felt like he was talking directly to me and not to one of the other characters in the story. Do you often feel like Goofy's talking directly to you, Scott? Pretty much he is my spirit animal. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) If you don't have a Goofy is my spirit animal t-shirt yet, Scott. I want one now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we've, we've mentioned that the characters who are affected by Dracula start to crave beats. But poor Clara actually gets turned completely into a beet. Admittedly, because she's so sweet, she's a sugar beet. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's what led me to the, the thought of the bats and beets. Hmm. Because she actually got turned into a beet instead of being turned into a bat. There you go. I suppose it's better than being turned into an ostrich or a tax collector. So, yeah. But then we get back to, remember, these were probably originally written in Italian. Would there be that same beats and bats? That's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. And and is there some additional meaning to beats that we're not getting because of the language barrier? So if you have any Italian listeners who know that beats have this reputation as a supernatural vegetable or have... There's some connotation that we're missing. Please let us know. There are a lot of Italian recipes that use beets. Either way, it was a lot of fun to read. I think the Frankenstein one was better overall. Uh, And that's better with a capital B. It, It really had a good message. It really felt more in line with Walt Disney, uh, the man and what he believed in and what he portrayed. Whereas this one has got a lot of <laughs> kind of moments. And I like some of the laugh out loud moments that I had with this. And I love Goofy as Van Helsing. Definitely nice to see a contrasting presentation of story with these two books. Does that make sense? One's a little bit more yeah. straightforward. One's more of kind of like a, not slapsticky, but you can't do anything with Goofy without expecting somebody to bonk into something. And he does more than once. Oh, I definitely agree with you. Not having read the original books, so I wasn't that tied to it, but definitely I felt Frankenstein 
felt more serious than the Dracula version did. Not, I'm not, I'm not saying that the Dracula version is just completely wacky. I thought it was very well done as well. And I absolutely love the artwork in both of them. Some of the artwork is great and seeing our favorite characters in situations and in different moods that you don't normally see was fascinating to me. Yeah, as we commented in our coverage on the Disney Indiana podcast, the cartoon style or the art style of these graphic novels, it's not typical Disney cartoon. It's much, has much more of a gothic feel. I think, Derek, you said it kind of reminds you more of Hammer, or maybe that was Scott. But yeah, I get us confused, too. It's okay. Yeah, but there's definitely more of a more mature feeling than you would probably expect from a Disney comic book or a Disney graphic novel. So I liked that. That brings me to a question that I wanted to ask Derek. Tracy and I were coming from a Disney background in in big Disney fandom. What would you say to someone who is a Monster Kid fan? Would they enjoy these graphic novels? I would think so. They have enough charm that harkens back to the golden age of Disney with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Goofy. I, I feel like when you think about Disney these days, you think about Pixar, you think about the more recent stuff, you might think about the princesses. But really... All of that was built on the mouse. All of that was built on Donald Duck and these short subjects. And I feel like these adaptations both have that charm that you can find in these short subjects. So if you grew up watching these things, uh, you know, when I was growing up, we had the Disney Channel. And every afternoon, my brother had the Donald Duck Presents show on Disney Channel, which was just a whole bunch of little short cartoons. Uh, I dated a girl who loved Donald Duck and... Got me loving Goofy. So, I mean, I love these characters uh, from when I was growing up. And that charm is present in these stories that treat the source material with respect. It's not lampooning it or spoofing it. It's just the Disney take on Dracula and Frankenstein. I think I said this on your show, that it's similar to when the Muppets do A Christmas Carol or Treasure Island. It's the Disney characters playing the roles of the characters in Dracula or Frankenstein. I think that's a good point. They're having fun with the characters, but you're right. It's not in a way where they're parodying or lampooning the original source material. I mean, we joke about Goofy Van Helsing, but he does still play the role of the character and he's He's true to the character from the novel. I think a lot of us can agree that one of the greatest Muppet movies ever is A Muppet's Christmas Carol. I mean, it's a fantastic film. It's phenomenal. It's great. And Gonzo is in the lead. And Gonzo is Gonzo, no matter what character he's playing. So, of course, Goofy is Goofy, whatever character he's playing in this. You know, and Donald Duck is Donald Duck in the Frankenstein. But it still has the spirit of the original at least sprinkled on top. And I love that. So, yeah, I'd recommend them. In fact, if I was doing a traditional holiday gift guide this year on Monster Kid Radio, I'd include these. Oh, very cool. I highly recommend both of them, too. One thing I want to mention to people that are MKR listeners that that probably maybe not listen to our show, if you've got little ones 
this is a perfect way to introduce them to these stories because they're going to see the characters that they're familiar with that they like and learn the original stories and maybe start them on the path to enjoying uh, these classic stories. It's a safe way to introduce Dracula. It's a safe way to introduce bloodsuckers <laughs> to your kids. And tax collectors. And tax collectors and those terrifying ostriches. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, personally, I would highly recommend both of these to parents, especially. But also, if you're a fan of these stories, they're worth checking out. Probably not going to read them this month because I tend to keep most of my media that I consume in October to nothing but the spooky stuff. But I wouldn't mind going back and reading some of the other adaptations that they did. I'm real curious about Goofy and Don Quixote. Real curious about that. And I'm curious as to Donald Duck and Hamlet. That one's really got my curiosity up. So we'll see. I'm really Me curious too. as to how, they're, how they'll do the uh, Alas Poriorik scene. Well, th thank you, both of you, for uh, Christmas ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying we sh maybe shouldn't be buying copies of these for ourselves prior to the holiday season. That's what I'm saying, yes. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Duly noted. Noted. So Disney Indiana is the home podcast, the home base for Tracy and Scott Morris every other week, knocking it out of the park, talking about what it's like being Disney fans, living pretty much equidistant from either Disney Park in the U.S. You guys have been doing it for over 10 years now, a decade. Over 11 years. I know. Well, 10 sounds. That's, that's over know. 10. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> 11 is. is one more than 10, I hear. <laughs> yeah, we go to 11. <laughs> wow. So a, over a decade of Disney Indiana delights over at DisneyIndiana.com. What do you guys got going on? Anything else Halloween-y this month for folks to check out or anything else coming up? Well, our previous October episode, we talked about the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror attraction that can be found at both Disneyland and Disney World. We talk about the sort history. Sort of found at Disneyland. Well, previously found at Disneyland. It has since been adapted to the Marvel verse. And we'll talk, we talk about that, the history of the attraction and our thoughts on both versions. And we're also going to include on the episode that Derek will appear on, where we talk about the Frankenstein uh, graphic novel. We're also going to include uh, several Disney Halloween themed music and in probably including Goofy singing the Monster Mash. I don't think I've ever heard that. That sounds amazing. It is pretty darn cool. What do Disney podcasters do to celebrate Halloween? What do you guys do on Halloween Day? This is actually going to be unusual for us because the last few Halloweens, we haven't been home. Like We were on a Disney cruise doing the, uh, the Disney Halloween cruise one time. Well, twice. twice. We've done two That's Disney true. Halloween cruises. In fact, last year... Uh, we were on a Disney cruise and we actually dressed up as Marvel characters. Tracy was dressed up as Agent Carter. And I was um, Captain United Nations because I had a Captain America shirt, a Captain America kilt and a Captain America luchador mask on. So I was representing multiple countries. <laughs> 
Luchador masks, man. That makes everything better. <laughs> I, I have a Captain America one and a Spider-Man one. Has Goofy ever worn a Luchador mask? I mean, that, that idea both appeals to me and terrifies me. It would not surprise me if Goofy has been a Luchador. If not, there are several people that listen to this podcast who are artists. In fact, I know one that is a luchador artist. And hint, hint, we would like to see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you both are invited, obviously, to the Monster Kid Radio Halloween Monster Movie Marathon Watch Along on Twitch on October 31st. So if you are looking for something to do... Come on by and listeners, if they do join us, maybe you'll see Scott and Tracy in the chat room that day. And uh, if you're interested to hear more from us, please check us out over at DisneyIndiana.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll play the promo. (laughs) C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes, because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully, Fozzie Bear, Buzz Lightyear, Link Hogthrob, Doug, Janice, Merida, Pepe, Bruce, Ralph the Dog, Wally, the Disney Indiana podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Enter death's waiting room, if you dare. No! No! Below the crypt lies the vault of horror. A treasure chest of the macabre, filled with madness, voodoo, vampires, torture, and terror. Things that make life worth leaving. The Vault of Horror from Cinerama Releasing. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. The Vault of Horror. It has all the things that make life worth leaving. The Flashbulb Podcast. Three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. From cosmic horrors to fisticuffs, fast cars, and smart mouths, we've got a chill for every spine. Find it all at flashpulp.com or search for it on iTunes.
you heard, Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a whole short story or a novel, a chapter or two at a time. Join us for our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos at the end of the month. Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Black Clock Audio Tales. Part of darkmyths.org. Thank you. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie was not featured in FM, but one of its stars was. Mad Doctor? Diabolical Scientist? No, he's St. Peter. The feature you demanded on Peter Cushing by Benjamin Verrillman appeared in Famous Monsters 117 and continued in 118, a total of 16 pages and 25 photos. It is a straightforward look at the life and films of one of Monster Kid Radio's favorite actors. It begins with this introduction. Vampire killer, maker of men, death's deputy, mummy defier, gorgon fighter. These and many more are the roles of terror that have been ably brought to the screen by Peter Cushing, who, along with Christopher Lee, is one of the first bona fide international horror movie stars. In the mid-50s, when Peter Cushing was 44, he had made 13 films, a few on the U.S. side of the Atlantic, a few in England. He had been gaining local London notice as a reliable star of TV dramas, including the key part of Winston Smith in the BBC TV version of George Orwell's horrific classic of the future, 1984. At this time, Hammer Films selected him to appear as Dr. Frankenstein in their new color version of Mary Shelley's durable masterpiece. And at 44, after 18 years in films, with The Curse of Frankenstein, Peter Cushing was finally a star. It goes on to describe his saintly kindness and then begins a look at his life from childhood. Did you know he was born May 26, 1913? He always wanted to be an actor. His grandfather, father, and uncle were actors, so it was a family tradition. He started to act in elementary school plays and also learned to paint. His first professional acting job at 21 was in a play called Cornelius by J.B. Priestley, who also wrote The Old Dark House. In 1939, he went to Hollywood to seek a career in films. His first film role was in a James Whale film, The Man in the Iron Mask. He was also in Laurel and Hardy's A Chump at Oxford, George Stevens' Vigil in the Night, and another James Whale film, They Dare Not Love. He returned to England in 1941 after being rejected for American military service in World War II. During the war, he performed in England's version of the USO and met his wife, Helen Beck. Illness caused the couple to return to London, where Peter made ends meet hand-painting scarves. Laurence Olivier gave Peter his first break in English cinema with a role in his Hamlet. He went on an acting tour with Olivier in Australia, but had to return to England because of illness. He began working in British television, racking up 50 appearances over the years. The biographical section ends with this sad note. Recently, Peter Cushing's dearly loved wife died. His love for her was widely known to horror film fans and all felt a small share of his grief. 
He must miss her terribly and now has to learn to live a new life in which Helen Beck Cushing is but a beloved memory. The article continues with this look at what Peter Cushing was like. Peter has had an interest in art all his life. In 1958, an exhibition of his paintings was held in London. He is skilled with his hands, so graceful and strong on the screen, having modeled toy trains and airplanes, built model theaters with miniature actor dolls and handmade furniture. He has also been an expert on tropical fish and birds. But all these hobbies are in the past now, for to Peter Cushing his work is his life, more than ever since Helen Cushing's death. In addition to his movie and television appearances, he has recorded for the blind and is active in the fight against muscular dystrophy. He is deeply religious and his belief has sustained him in his sorrow over the loss of his wife. As mentioned earlier, Peter Cushing impresses everyone who meets him with his kindness, warmth, and thoughtfulness. In short, as Robert Quarry and Christopher Lee have characterized him, he is truly St. Peter. Mr. Barrelman continues with a look at Cushing's acting style, noting how his look and demeanor led him to similar type roles for the most part. The writer comments, It is no shame for an actor to be typecast. In fact, it generally means steady employment. Cushing's versatility is without question, so his playing similar parts is only proof of his reliability. These somewhat similar personalities which Peter Cushing so often embodies boil down to a scientist type, calculating, aristocratic, humorous, brisk, shrewd, driven, energetic, enthusiastic, and, above all, intelligent. This type can be a villain, as his Baron Frankenstein frequently is, or a hero, as his various Dr. Van Helsings always are. The article then lists the films that Peter and Christopher Lee appeared together. A look at critical responses to Cushing's role follows. The first part ends with a description of, at the time, one of Peter's lesser seen films, The Skull. Part 2 in issue 118 looks at The Island of Terror, Corruption, Twins of Evil, Tales from the Crypt, The Gorgon, Eye Monster, Madhouse, and The Blood Beast Terror. The author continues with a list of Peter's films that had not been widely released and were very hard to see, which included today's film, From Beyond the Grave. Next is a filmography which includes the titles, years, and Peter's roles in film and television. After the filmography, there is an excerpt from an interview with Peter Cushing by Gary Parfit. In it is this amusing anecdote from Peter's first film role. Really, it was an incredible stroke of luck as I only went to America for the purpose of obtaining film work, which was my ambition. I arrived at the time Columbia Studios were preparing the film version of Man in the Iron Mask, in which Lewis Hayward played the dual role of twin brothers, one evil and the other virtuous. When being interviewed by James Whale, I said with tongue-in-cheek that I was a competent swordsman when asked whether I had any experience in this field. I was then introduced to M. Cavern, the studio's fencing master, to brush up on the art, but on handing me a foil, he immediately recognized my inability. So, you fenced before? He said with a hint of sarcasm. No, dear boy, I haven't, was my reply. But I had to say I could fence to get the part. Then I will teach you to be the best swordsman in Hollywood, came his immediate reply. If you had said yes, my heart would have been offended by the way you took the foil. I knew you had never seen one before, let alone used one. After gaining fencing experience, I was able to appear in the role offered to me, which entailed doubling for Lewis Hayward, but regretfully, most of my part finished on the cutting room floor. And apart from appearing in scenes with this dreadful iron mask on, I only briefly appeared on screen as a horseman. In fact, part of my role was a sword fight with Warren Williams, who ran me through. Even then, I got killed. 
which seem to have been my trademark. The article ends with an invitation to join the Peter Cushing Fan Club, and a thank you to the club for the information given which was used in this report. If you are a Peter Cushing fan, FM 117 and 118 are a must-have for your collection. This is a fine, pun-free article with great picks. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny, saying adios. Corruption is not a woman's picture. Will the next body turn up under a car seat? Corruption is not a woman's picture. Will the next body turn up in a police? Corruption is not a woman's picture. Will the next body turn up in a deep freeze? Corruption is not a woman's picture. Therefore, no woman will be admitted alone to see this super shocker. Columbia Pictures presents Corruption. Corruption is not a woman's picture. Therefore, no woman will be admitted alone to see this super shocker. Corruption in color. Rated R. Restricted. Persons under 16 not admitted unless accompanied by parent or adult guardian. The author of Psycho is back with the most unusual horror shocker you will ever see. The house that dripped blood. Welcome to Hampstead Manor, one of the most beautifully mysterious estates in all of England. No one quite understands why it's been on the market for so long at such a low price, but there is a reason. And after you spend a night at Hampstead, you'll know why. The house that dripped blood. One by one, you will meet the previous owners. They're all still around, lurking, watching, waiting for you. The house that dripped Blood. A murderously monstrous movie starring that terror team that will thrill and chill you to the very bone. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. The House That Dripped Blood. A special midnight encore from Filmways, rated PG. Every once in a while, there is a special kind of horror film that becomes a horror classic. In 1931, it was Frankenstein. In 1932, it was Dracula. In 1971, it was Rosemary's Baby. In 1973, it was The Exorcist. And this year it is From Beyond the Grave. Secret worlds become public nightmares where children's play toys are the devil's weapons. A truly terrifying motion picture where death is just the beginning and the grave is not just a resting place. And pleasant rooms become evil tombs. From beyond the grave, the horror picture you will remember all your life. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night 
Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of. Like that pesky Van Helsing. What else? Um, the cat one? Uh, the, uh, uncanny? the Uncanny. Yeah, which it's out on Blu-ray now, isn't it? Mm, it might be. I don't know. We talked about Dr. Terrors. Oh, that's right. We haven't, we haven't talked about Torture Garden, House nope. of Drip Blood, Asylum, or Vault of Horror. I love that you can just rattle these off. And in case you didn't know, man, I'm actually recording right now. I'm going to open the show with this. So. Oh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, listeners, I'm talking with Larry Underwood, Dr. Gang Green, the man who recently celebrated 20 years as a horror host and probably the biggest fan of portmanteau anthology horror films that I know. And we're just rattling off some titles here of, of some things that uh, you and I are going to have to talk about, man. Yeah, man, I love these Amicus movies. They just hold a soft spot in my heart. It goes back to my love of um, EC Comics and sure these uh, anthology films. So nobody did it better than these Amicus movies. I was just about to say that, too, which is why we're probably friends, um, <laughs> that nobody really kind of tapped into that formula, that format better uh, before or since than no. these guys, you know, and, and we were talking off mic. We've been chatting for like an hour now before I actually hit record, which is awesome. Uh, but we were chatting off mic about how these films, when they work, it's because they have that comeuppance. And Amicus was really good at that, you know, making sure that those who do wrong are punished and it's that's great. Right. That, that's that EC comics formula. You know, that's what makes these stories go is that, you know, you're bad people. They get that cosmic justice. That's that come up and they reap what they sow, you know, yep. and all the good anthology films, creep show and tales from the crypt, all of them. That's exactly the formula. And this one that we're doing here from beyond the grave, there's actually a story in here that had me questioning that. It's like, wait a minute, that's not, and, and we'll talk about that. We'll get to it. But there, there is a story in this collection that felt like maybe they were breaking form, but not quite. And they did it in a really good way. And, and we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, this, this one was a lot of fun. I know this episode has been a long time coming because we've been talking a lot about doing it. And you're just a busy man, man, trying to get you on the show. You're just busy with, like I said, 20 years of horror hosting. You've got, I don't know when this episode is going to go out. Uh, it'll either be during or right after you wrapped up your big return to television in October. Right. Just, it's, how did that come about? As the 20th anniversary approached, I made mention of it online, or maybe Cameron did. I can't remember. Anyway, it was mentioned online, and our program director, Mike Hook, at the station chimed in and said, well, you know, we really need to do something for this. And uh, so we got to talking a little bit, and he's like, yeah, man, let's let's put the show back on. Let's put it on in October. Uh, there's four weeks in October this year, so we did four episodes. You know, it's a little different this time around because in we know we've talked about this on here before, but in the past, the station had movies that they were licensing that they show. So they had a, a, a whole package of movies that they gave me to run. And I just went through and would um, just pick the ones that I wanted to run. Sometimes they were good movies like Total Recall. Sometimes they were uh, not so good movies that were still a lot of fun, like Future Force and Future Zone, you know, and stuff like that. This time around, they've dropped their programming. Those those package of movies they're no longer paying for. So it was a matter of finding your own content. And this time, the big difference was that everything has to be closed captioned. 
uh, we're broadcast TV on the CW station. And that was never an issue before, but FCC standards require that everything's closed captioned now, which means, you know, going in and captioning everything and, and I'm the one doing it all myself. So is all that work in addition to shooting and editing the episodes. So it's just a little bit different ball game this time around, but it was a lot of fun. It's good to be back on the air. I'll have these four episodes on and then, uh, we're talking about maybe doing it again next year. That's awesome. This has been a nice kind of experiment to see how much, uh, what kind of the workflow would be like this time around. I'm kind of changed the format around, changed the name of the show and, you know, just kind of tried to make it a little different, but yet, you know, just sort of feel out the process of, of captioning and all that. Sure. What was the name or what is the name of the show? Dr. Gangrene Sanitarium. Nice. Where all the movies are mad. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. So since this is broadcast TV, I mean, you had to be local to, to catch it or watch it. Will there eventually be any kind of online releases for any of this stuff? Or is it yeah. kind of lo- There will be? There's two public domain movies. So I'll put both of those, the entire segments, on YouTube. Okay. And then two of them are independent films. So I'll put the host bits up on YouTube for those. Right on. Well, uh, you know, speaking of Amicus, speaking of anthology films, we were talking about that at the beginning of this and all. uh, We've got a movie we're going to talk about this week that is an anthology film or a portmanteau film. So I feel like there's an important distinction here. An anthology film is just stories kind of strung together. There's really no host or or wraparound bit or anything like that, whereas a portmanteau actually has that wraparound like an intro, maybe even some pieces that piece everything together, that sort of thing. And that's when we say portmanteau, that's what I'm referring to. You know, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors with Peter Cushing reading the fortune of the four doomed souls on the train with him. Uh, or in this film, Peter Cushing again, <laughs> being right. the owner of a really cool little thrift shop. What, what is the name of the shop? Temptations Limited. Which is awesome. I would love to go to a store called Temptations Limited if Peter Cushing's putting around in the back. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't t- do anything wrong in that store because I know what happens. And I love, oh man, I love Peter so much. Yes, he's great in this. He really is. When it comes to these portmanteau films, the wraparound stories, to me, are what make the movie great. You take a good anthology film, and what make, but what makes it brings it up to the great level is indeed the wraparound. And that's what so many of the modern anthologies just are missing. They don't take the time to add a wraparound feature. They just shove all the stories together or there's one, maybe they just doesn't really work. You know, I mean, it's just kind of, it's like a kind of a half-hearted attempt at wraparounds because it's just not important to the filmmakers like it should be, like it is in these. And that's what makes these so good in uh, Peter Cushing is fantastic in this role. Oh, yeah. He doesn't have a name, per se, but he's great in it. You know, you're right. I didn't even think about that. He doesn't have a name, but I don't know if you noticed or not, the film opens on, it's called From Beyond the Grave, right? And it opens mm-hmm. panning across a graveyard, and you have all your tombstones. Then the first thing it does is it pans to a sign from a church and it pauses for a second. Did you pay attention to that? I have a feeling there was something there I probably missed. So <laughs> I had, I watched it a couple of times and rewound and just kept looking at that sign. I thought that was an odd transition because it went from the graveyard to the sign and it paused there for a minute. And then it moves from that into the alley. It's a really nice transition. It's done really well because it goes from that sign to 
that sign being on the wall of the alley. And it's a nice transition to get you into the urban setting from the graveyard. Sure. On that sign, it shows the hours that church services are held. But it says services, All Hallows. All Hallows is like the name of the of the church. All Hallows services by Reverend B. Goodenough. And then <laughs> down below, it says Requiem by appointment in the chapel. Apply to the verger, Mr. R. Butcher. I think what that sign is saying is that you have to be good enough or you'll get an appointment with the butcher, which the butcher being an analogy for death. So the whole idea behind the movie is pretty much summed up in that one little sign saying, be good enough or you'll meet death. Wow. And these tales are from beyond the grave because it tells what happens when you are not good enough. It's all a morality play. Yeah, it really is. I said it was a thrift shop. It's actually a, more of an antique kind it's of an store. Antique store. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I guess I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. Darn. Yeah. You know, to catch. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice little transition. It moves um, from that wall into the alleyway. And that's where you see the shop sign and the, and the antique store. So it's pretty cool. It, it really, yeah. Uh, you know, I keep thinking every once in a while, I want to do a series of like business cards or, or stationary for these businesses that we see in some of these movies, like, you know, Conliffe Antiques from The Wolfman, that sort of thing. I'd love to have like a business card or some stationery from Temptations Limited. It'd just be kind of fun, you know? It would be, yeah. <laughs> so I learned a little bit about the way this whole movie came about today. Okay, okay. So I've got this DVD, I think we mentioned it earlier, Amicus House of Horrors. I don't know if anybody out there has this. Uh, it's from oldies, and I've watched some of it, but I've never watched all of it. It's a two-disc set, and what it is, it comprises of interviews with people who worked on Amicus Films, just talking about the Amicus Films. It goes through their timeline, and it pretty much just talks about it. And when it gets to the From Beyond the Grave section, they have the director, Kevin Connors, on there, and Angela Pleasance is on there, and the actor who played the little boy, John O'Farrell's on there, and there's a producer, John Dark, is on there. And each of them is telling sort of behind-the-scenes stories, what they remember shooting and um, the making of kind of thing. It's, it's pretty interesting. But the way this whole film came to be was that the director, Kevin Connor, he at that time was a editor and had edited movies, but he was really thinking he wanted to get more into the producing side of things. He wanted to do something different. So he reached out to R. Chetwin Hayes, the writer who also wrote the stories for yeah, the yeah, Monster yeah, yeah. Club. Yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> he optioned 12 stories from Chetwin Hayes. Oh, wow. And okay. he and two other guys wrote adaptations for those stories. Then they pitched them all over everywhere and nobody, nobody wanted them. Nobody bid on it. What his idea was, was to make it a TV series, an anthology TV series where they would show these stories based on R. Chetwin Hayes. So that didn't happen, but somehow it landed on Subotsky's desk he loved it. He contacted Kevin, had him come in. They had a meeting and he said, listen, what I'd like to do is take the best four stories from this bunch. We'll write a new linking story and we'll let you direct them. And Kevin said, I've never directed anything. I, you know, I don't know anything about directing. He said, don't worry about it. 
I've found in my history that editors make the most reliable directors. You'll be fine. You're going to direct. So Kevin said Subotsky gave him his start with this movie. First time director, and it all happened because he took the initiative to license these movies from R. Chetwin Hayes, which is pretty cool. It's very cool. And he would go on, you know, direct other movies, uh, Motel Hell, that's him. Uh, the Land That Time Forgot, At the Earth's Core, again with Cushing. I mean, he did some cool stuff. And there's a lot of filmmakers from this era, specifically, that I don't know as much about as I'd like to. I'll have to check that DVD out. Um, yeah, it's not that expensive. And I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes if people want to get their hands on it as well. Buy it through the uh, Amazon link I'm going to put up there, and you know we get like maybe two cents off the deal. But you're helping MKR out at the same time. And you get a cool little collection. It's a two-disc set, right? It is, yeah. The good part of it is just hearing the people that were actually involved in these movies talking about making the movies. Yeah, and we're kind of in the sweet spot for you, too, with like the 70s monster cinema. I mean, that, that's really kind of where you gravitate toward. Every time I talk to you, it comes up that this is really kind of where Gang Green lives. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I mean, you know, I keep track of what movies my son and I watch um, uh-huh. each month, and I will write down what films by decade we watched uh, or how many per decade we watch than usually what my favorite first time watch is. And it's almost always something from the seventies. You get some awesome Peter Cushing in this. I mean, I like a young Peter Cushing. I like him in, you know, the early hammer stuff, that sort of thing. But when you get to an older Peter Cushing, there's this menace that is just kind of bubbling beneath the surface. I mean, yeah, he's a nice guy. He's a gentleman. He probably smells great, you know, whatever, but <laughs> But there's this this edge that he brings when he's in the Amicus films that kind of terrifies me. I know he's supposed to be this kindly old man running this antique shop, but I would not try to steal from this guy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. There's just nothing. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much the thing here in this film is that everybody who either steals from him or cheats him in any way. Right. Is going to pay the price. And that price is typically death and, and sometimes some very supernatural means of dying. Yeah, there's this wraparound story with this burglar thief guy hanging out outside and maybe he's going to break in and that sort of thing. And, and he gets killed, too. You know, everybody dies. I mean, it's spoiler alert. Everybody who does something bad dies. And that's what these movies are about. And his death isn't necessarily supernatural. But like David Warner's death in the very beginning, the first installment that's that's terrible what happens to him. I mean, he <laughs> right? deserves it, but it's terrible what happens to him. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about this story is the first and final stories are very similar in, in my mind. Um, I don't huh. know if I had been the one picking these stories, if I would have put both of those in the same movie. I might have saved one of them for uh, a different film uh, just because they're both portals into another dimension with a supernatural figure inside each of them uh-huh. so they very similar in that way smoky kind of dreamlike other world in both of them but i like them both i mean they're both great and oh, then sure. the cast the cast in this movie is fantastic oh yeah i mentioned david warner when i saw that he was in this man, i popped i was excited you got david warner you've got donald pleasance yep. i mean who doesn't love donald pleasance right you know ian ogilvy oh man and he's wonderful in this too Peter Cushing. I mean, it's just a top-notch cast all the way through. It really is. So, yeah, the first story is called The Gate Crasher. David Warner goes into the store, and he buys a mirror 
But when he sees the mirror, he haggles with Cushing. Cushing says that it's 250 pounds. He says, well, no, I'll give you 25. He says, look at this thing. It's a reproduction. You know, it's cheap. Look at it. You can tell it's been painted on the back. It's not real. And, you know, the thing I love about these is if you're watching for it, you see little facial tics, little glances of recognition from Cushing. He knows he's being ripped off, but he allows it to happen because the whole idea is to tempt people to see what they'll do if they're deserving of the fate that they're going to get. So he uh, buys it for 25 pounds, 25 quid, and takes it home, hangs it up. And when he does, the first thing has some friends over for a party and one of them suggests, hey, let's have a seance because this looks like some, something spooky that would be in a medium's parlor. And he says, and the other one says, well, let's have a seance. That'd be fun. He's, okay, let's do it. Let's have a seance. <laughs> of course, in the 70s, seances and stuff like that were kind of, you know, kind of the rage, I guess. You know, I think there was a, a movement of that back then, don't you think? You know, it really was. The 70s, and that's one of the things that I'm rediscovering that I love about some of the 70s horror movies that I've been watching lately, because I've been watching a lot more of them lately. I love that edge of, like, the occult, uh, witchcraft, Satanism, seances, ghosts. There's this different take on this kind of material that you don't get with movies from the 40s and 50s. And it's just a completely different vibe. Right, and I, like, love look I love it. I love it. Satanic rites of Dracula. Oh yeah, I mean, even when they try to work example. it out. Mm-hmm. You know what I love about Archet when Hayes stories is that his monsters are not necessarily your classic archetypes. They're their own things. You not really. I mean, think about Monster Club. You got Shad Mox and Humes and Hume Goos and uh, all these different monsters that none none of them exist in literature that he made. He created his own, and that's the same with this. I mean, you. You could maybe he's a he's not really a vampire. He's some kind of creature that feeds on the energy of he feeds on life substance, uh, life sustenance, right. sustenance. He when he he forces David Warner to go out, bring people back and murder them, and he feeds on their life force. The idea is that when enough of them are murdered, he'll be able to come back to life. So when you first see him, he's got it's almost like disfigured face. There's makeup on his face. It looks kind of cruddy and funky this is looking. You the know? guy in the mirror that we're talking guy about. guy in the mirror, yeah. right. Yeah. With each death, it gets less so to where he looks almost normal and eventually appears in the room itself. And... Are we gonna we're gonna spoil these, right? There's yeah, no... there's spoiler. Yeah, yeah. I've already played the bumper about spoilers, listeners. You guys know how it works by now. <laughs> Dracula has already warned you guys that we get a little excited. Right? <laughs> yep. Derek and his guests get a little excited. That's right. That's right. <laughs> who who did that, by the way? You know, uh, it's a voice actor that I found on Fiverr of all places. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it was, Dra- it was Dracula. It was Dracula. I don't know. You know it was, Dracula. It was yeah. Dracula. Yeah, it was so. Dracula. Yeah. It was Dracula's know. son, actually. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> oh, Dracula's busy. Uh, <laughs> but so uh, so yeah, the the fate is that um, Warner, whose name is let's see, Edward Charlton. Yeah. Charlton, which sounds like charlatan, but he winds up getting sucked into the mirror himself. I guess the ghoul, he mentions that we are legion. He's going to go join his friends. So there's numbers of these creatures out there. So once he's freed, he's free to go join them and, and just start feeding on humans. So yeah. not only did he 
get sucked into the mirror, but he also releases a, a fiend on the world. So, yeah, way to go, bud. If he hadn't sift Peter Cushing, we would have been fine, but no. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> Had to lie about that mirror. <laughs> I like David Warner a lot. He's one of these actors that I don't think about a lot, but when I see him, I get really excited. There's just something about the way he carries himself. He's got one heck of a voice. And that they opened up this series of tales with him. I'd go to his party. I'd do a seance with him. I think I even posted on Facebook when I was watching uh, From Beyond the Grave that when David Warner says, it's seance time, you know you're in for a good time. You know? (laughs) It's a party. That's right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Oh, that's good stuff. So, yeah, that's the first story. And then the second story, you know, it may be my favorite of the bunch, the Donald Pleasant story. Yeah. You know, it's because it's so different. I mean, it's just so odd. It does, in a way, remind me of one of the stories from The House of Drip Blood, in a way, just because there's a child in that one who's getting in the Christopher Lee segment with her little girl who gets revenge on her dad. And then the same thing in Creepshow. It it made me think in Creepshow with the kid, you know. Wasn't there something in The Uncanny as well? I'm starting to feel like there was something in there, too, with the the little girl and the cat. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, in this one, it's an actor named Ian Bannon who comes in. His name is Christopher Lowe, which is a great name. Again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lowe, Mr. Lowe. He is in a loveless marriage with Diana Doors. They have a son. And I love the family dynamic between the three of them because Diana's always giving him just a hard time. Just, you know, you don't make any money and you know, you're, you're, you know, just wearing him out. And he just wants respect from his wife and gets none and gets furious about it. And the kid just laughs the whole time. He just sits and laughs at both of them. Right. He meets this beggar on the street. It's our man. It's our man, Donald Pleasance. And he's selling, he's selling laces, <laughs> uh, matches, laces, matches. He's making his living selling shoelaces and matches. Now, I'm not sure how much of a living you can make selling shoelaces and matches, but I guess they were big at the time. He, he really wants to impress this guy because this guy's the first person who's really shown him any kind of respect, which he doesn't get at home at all from his wife. Again, she just completely treats him like garbage. So he goes into the antique shop and he sees a medal. A, um, it's like uh, a medal of honor kind of thing. Right. A medal of honor, a war medal. And he wants to buy it. The Distinguished Service Order. That's, That's it. it. English service medal. And he asks Cushing to buy it. And he says, well, I can't unless you have your papers to prove that you really got one of these. I don't doubt that you did, but you have to show me the papers before I can sell it to you. And he doesn't. He says, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll come back. And of course, I'll have to get him to come back. Of course, he doesn't have them. No, he's just trying to. Cushing intentionally turns his back on the guy and allows him the opportunity to lift the medal, which he does. And goes and shows it to the beggar and he invites the man back to his apartment, the beggar does, and says, uh, my, my daughter and I would love to have a distinguished gentleman such as yourself. We'd be honored to, to have dinner with you. And he talks him into coming and having dinner with the two of them. And his daughter is played by his real-life daughter, um, Angela Pleasance. And she looks exactly like her dad. I was going to say that. I didn't want to be mean. But, yeah, when you first see her, you think, wait. Oh, yeah, you'd know. And she, <laughs> she, so she's one of the people on that Amicus House of Horrors disc that I talked about that, that they interview. And she even mentions something about it. She says, you know, it's the Pleasant's eyes. I have those Pleasant's eyes, you know, and it's it. It's in the eyes. I mean, she looks 
Those eyes are, are her dad's eyes. Exactly. She's not an unattractive woman. That no, said. No, not at all. But it's a weird thing because you've seen Donald Pleasance a million times in a million movies. And this is, it's like, <laughs> uh, okay. It's just really off-putting in a way, you know, to see a, <laughs> a female version of Donald Pleasance. Yeah. But I love that the two of them are in this together. And this was the first film that they appeared in together. And I think that's pretty cool that she got to play his daughter on screen as well. So Mr. Lowe winds up falling for Angela's character. Oh, and his name is Jim Underwood. That's his name, which I have a brother named Jimmy Underwood. So oh. <laughs> I find that pretty funny. Uh, nice. Jim Underwood, and she is his daughter, Emily. So he winds up falling for Emily, and Jim conveniently leaves the apartment one night because he keeps coming over for dinner repeatedly, keeps coming back, coming back, and he conveniently leaves the two of them alone one night, and, of course, they wind up in bed together, and immediately you see that there's something going on because he wakes up. She's out of the bedroom, walks in the other room. She's got this big black candle burning, and she's made this effigy of his wife and pulls out a pen. And she's going to stab the effigy kind of like a voodoo doll. And yeah, so some voodoo doll action here. Yeah. And so she's like, order me. You have to order me. So she's not going to do it herself. She's going to make him tell her make, to do it. So, again, yeah. it's his action. He's got to make the choice. Yep. And he does. He pretty much says, if that makes you happy, do it. You know, he pretty much says, do it. And she does. And his wife is killed. It's very cool. It really is. The way they do it, uh, when she stabs the doll, it bleeds. And that's just creepy, man. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you can't expect me to believe something that really happened. She goes, go home and see. So he does. And his wife is dead. The son is there kind of cowering in the corner. And there's, I guess, a chime at the door. The door opens and there are the Underwoods. Uh, dressed in black, they come into the room and you hear the wedding march playing. <laughs> it's like that escalated quickly, but okay. It, it escalated very quickly. Next scene, the two of them are getting married. Emily and our man Lowe, the son's in the background. And this is a really cool little segment, again, that reminded me of Creepshow a lot because, you know, in Creepshow, the little boy has buys the voodoo doll from the comic book and kills his dad, right? Yeah. It's Tom Atkins is at the beginning and it's really super mean to him. It's the same thing in the house that drip blood. The little girl makes the voodoo doll and kills Christopher Lee with it. In this, they go to cut the wedding cake and she <laughs> says, you want me to cut the cake? And he says, yes. And she looks at her dad. You want me to cut it? And he says, yes. And so she does, but she cuts the top of the groom's head and we see on Mr. Lowe, his head starts bleeding. It's really kind of cool. Yeah, the, the way they do the imagery there. It's kind of a neat little little story. It's a cool little tale. I do like it a lot, but I also feel like this one is probably the one that's the least similar to the rest of them. In mm -hmm. that, like David Warner, his fate is his because of what he did at the antique store. What happens to some of the other characters happens to them because of what they did to Peter Cushing. This one, yeah, the guy did do something at the antique shop he shouldn't have done. But I felt like there were two different motivations behind what was happening to this guy. And maybe mm -hmm. that's just because that's the story that they picked to try to make work into this thing. And it's not enough to say, hey, I, 
I didn't like it because of this. I mean, it's still very enjoyable. It's actually one of my yeah. favorite stories in this whole thing, too. I guess he actually wronged Cushing's character more than the others, though, because he actually stole, and the others just sort of... That's true. ...cheated, but he, he actually lifted something, so... That's true. There is that. I mean, yeah. either way, I mean, it's still a great story. It's a great little story, and I love the imagery of, like, the voodoo dolls and the the cake topper actually bleeding as well. Those are pretty, some great images. So that actor that played the kid talks about it on that disc. He said that that was actually kind of shocking to him that he didn't realize that it was going to be actually blood on the actor's head. And he's like, you know, that kind of was a little disturbing to me as a kid watching this all take place in front of me. You know, it's kind of cool. He talks about some different things like the fact that Diana Doors had, her leg was in a plaster cast. She had had some kind of accident, so they had to keep it off screen all the time. She was hobbling around with this big plaster cast on her leg and, you know, just some behind the scenes stuff like that. That's huh. kind of fun. Okay. Again, Angela Pleasant, it's great seeing her in this. She's done, you know, a handful of things. She, one role that I was looking at IMDb and I went, oh, yeah, that is her. She was the ghost of Christmas past in the George C. Scott Christmas story. And then once I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, of course she was. Oh, okay. I've watched that a hundred times probably, you know, and. Huh. Yeah. So kind of cool. She's not into horror movies at all. And she said she's never seen it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's some interviews with Cushing on that disc. And he talks about how he's not into horror movies at all either. That, you know, it's not his thing. He doesn't watch them. He makes them because that's what people want to see him in. And he wants to please people. Yeah. But he doesn't watch them himself. So kind of interesting. Huh. So, yeah. So then we move along to the uh, the third story. Now, uh, weaving in, starting with the second story, weaving in and out is the burglar that you talked about. This guy's casing the joint and he starts to go into the shop and someone comes walking up and he kind of walks away each time. And then it follows the other character into the shop. So that is sort of another layer going on. So the, the criminal is sort of hiding in the alley and casing the antique shop, planning on going in and, and uh, robbing the place. But the third one's called The Elemental. And uh, this is Reggie Warren, who is a man that's going in to buy a snuff box. And he has a real nice silver one, and he sees the price tag in it, and he pulls it out, and he switches it with a different snuff box. Cushing comes over, gets the box from him, looks in it, and you just see that little instant of recognition. He realizes, he knows, the guy switched it, but he allows it to happen and rings it up anyway. And did you notice props playing with all the stuff? I mean, he could go wild in this store. Are you kidding? You know, the minute the movie started and I saw Peter Cushing's working in an antique shop, you know he had a field day. <laughs> He comes out in this segment carrying an alligator, a stuffed alligator for some reason. I'm like, he totally, that was not in the script. He just grabbed that and worked. This is a nice piece here. You know, he just totally grabbed that and worked it in there. You know where that was. Oh, that man. Was Hot props cushing, man. He he <laughs> loved, loved just having something to do in his hands. What Listeners, if you haven't picked up on this. Whenever you watch a Peter Cushing film, it doesn't matter what it is. I, th I don't know if he does it in Star Wars, but anything else, watch his hands because he can't not fidget with something. I mean, even right down to like, I think my favorite instance of this is in the, uh, the Abominable Snowman when he's talking at one point and he just casually pulls out this claw from something, some animal, 
and then a nail file and just starts filing it as he's it's like <laughs> come on <laughs> it makes no sense not even in the script but you know it's one of those things that he did to give his characters uh personality and life and i love it sometimes it's a little it's a little distracting because i find myself watching his hands more than anything else in the movie but <laughs> it's just wonderful and you know you know when he saw that stuffed alligator he's like yep that's the one i'm taking that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he's carrying this stuffed alligator but but this one uh the, the character winds up riding a train and he sits across from this old lady who's a who is a, a medium and she says you've got an elemental on your shoulder and he's like what she says, it's right there and it's a nasty one so he's got this he picked up this invisible creature from the shop on his shoulder and it's feeding on his life force and it's <laughs> reminding me of um the stephen Spielberg, Toby Hooper directed 80s ghost thing. Uh, poltergeist. Poltergeist. Thank you. It kind of reminded me of Poltergeist a little bit with the the woman who, who is the medium. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. A little Poltergeist vibe going, but she gives him her business card and says, call me. You're going to need this. Hang on to it. And he takes it. He does keep it to his credit. But later that night, I love it. Things start happening. The, Elemental is especially attracted to his wife and slaps her and scratches her and then chokes her in bed. First, it's holding her hand and then it starts choking her and she thinks it's him. But then they realize very quickly that something else is going on. So they bring this medium in to try to cleanse the house. She does look a lot like um, Zelda Rubenstein. She yeah. does make me think of her a lot. The actress is Margaret Layton who I don't really know much about, but again, she's one of these actresses, much like Diana Doris. If you go and look her up on the internet, try to find a little bit more about her. She was quite the looker when she was younger. It makes me want to learn a little bit more about her career. It looks like she did a lot. And I love her in this. I mean, she's got that quirky, like you said, Rubenstein kind of uh, performance. I wonder if maybe some inspiration was pulled from that. I don't know. Very, very likely. Very likely. Stolen, don't steal from Cushing. So. Right. That's right. You and don't. then our final story is called The Door. This is the Ian Ogilvy story. And Cushing leaves the till open. He takes money from him for this this ornate door that he has kind of hidden behind some stuff. They move it out of the way, and it's a big, ornate, silver-looking antique door that's hundreds of years old. And so they buy it. He buys it and gives him the money. He says, look, I don't have quite enough, but I'll give you everything in my wallet. And he says, well, I'll be broke, but I'll give it to you. And Cushing just kind of looks at him like, okay. And so he gives him all his money that he has and, and buys it. Cushing turns around and leaves the room and leaves the, the cash drawer open. And you sort of see Ian look at it for a second. He's tempted. This is my favorite story of the batch. I really enjoy the tale here. And the way they do it, too, I, I imagine there was some real thought put behind how to make this magic door thing work. The guy gets the door, brings it into his, uh, I guess, his home office, his home study area, and, and uses it to be the door for like a closet, it seems like, mm -hmm. or like a storage mm -hmm. area. But right. when you open it, it's not the closet or storage area anymore. It's not a bunch of shelves with papers and such. It's this other room, this other realm. And it's just really neat the way they will sometimes show the storage area with the shelves and the papers and all that close the door, open the door again. And now there's this other realm and they do it all in one shot. Yeah. And that to me was pretty darn neat. It's pretty cool. There's of course another supernatural figure in this room who wants to trap 
him in there and steal his life force, basically. Yep. He and his wife at one point almost get trapped. He says, well, two souls are better than one. So he's going to trap them both and the door slowly closing and they're fighting. And it's a pretty dynamic, dramatic ending. Again, this isn't a standard archetype monster that you would see anywhere. This is something that it's, it's its own creature, you know, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I think Amicus was trying real hard to have their own beasties, their own monsters, and, and probably because of the source material they were pulling from. I half expected the door to bleed. You know, I was watching for the door yeah. to bleed, you know, because she does a number on it with an axe. Well, they, yeah, they, yeah I mean, he does. Yeah. Uh, or is it, well, either one. It's just the way they kind of pulp it is <laughs> Yeah, I think she starts it and then he finishes it off hacking at the uh, latches on the, you know, where it's actually the hinges of the, where it's attached. The way it ends is just really neat. I keep saying the word neat and cool, but it, it's a, it's neatly wrapped up. I love that. And then we get our final wraparound with the burglar. He finally comes in. He's going to he's going to rob Cushing, but it doesn't quite work out the way he thinks. He just gives the guy the guns. Right. Right. <laughs> and this is where we see that Cushing is really some kind of supernatural entity himself uh that the entire shop is a supernatural place yeah i could even see going so far as the shop appears and disappears maybe in the future if if you were to want to go there you know that would totally make sense too like it appeared to tempt people and then it just it just disappears like it's an otherworldly thing but if you be good enough you will survive do not succumb to Temptations Limited. Right. Don't let your children go in this place and play unattended, okay? Because <laughs> that could end badly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a short and sweet little movie, easy to watch. I like all the stories. I think they're they're fun, and the cast is fantastic. The music is really good in it again, uh, like you were talking about, Douglas Gamble. Um, I wrote down that this guy, he did score a lot of the Amicus films. Yep. Um, he, he did Tales from the Crypt, Asylum, Vault of Horror, and Now the Screaming Starts, Madhouse, The Beast Must Die, and the segment in the Monster Club, the Shadmock segment. Subotsky liked to work with people that he knew over and over, and Chetwin Hayes, these segments are all based on his stories. So this was 1974, so when this uh-huh. movie was, was made. The book for the Monster Club was written in 1976. In the book, there's a character whose name is an anagram of Kevin Connor, the oh. director of this movie. It was huh. done as a tribute to him. Oh, that's in, cool. And then taking it further, in the Monster Club movie, there's a character whose name is an anagram of Milton Subotsky. So they totally did that all as tributes, you know. So these guys were all friends. They all knew each other. You know, they kept in touch. And I really loved that tie-in between all of them. You know, I don't know as much about Amicus as I do Hammer. And the more that I learn about Amicus, it feels like, yeah, they did kind of keep that kind of family feel that early Hammer did as well. And I know that they shared family members, you know, Cushing, Lee, some of the directors going back and forth, you know, Freddie Francis, things like that. But it really does feel like they tried to make sure that all of their films had the same kind of vibe and feel. I love all their portmanteau stuff. Somebody in the Facebook group, the Monster Kid Radio Facebook group said that they like to think that Peter Cushing's proprietor in From Beyond the Grave is just another incarnation of Dr. Terror. It's yeah, that's interesting. He's kind of doing the same thing, just a different way, a different incarnation of it, which... 
you know, I love the idea of there being this grander amicus universe thing going on. <laughs> yeah. Where you better not do anything wrong because something bad's going to happen to you if it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. No, I, I like it. The amicus movies are interesting in that they're they're definitely rivals to Hammer, but they're very much their own thing. Yep. They're not as much overt sexuality. There is violence and there is blood from a time to time, but it's def- certainly not as uh, heavily emphasized as with the am- the Hammer stuff. I don't think Amicus itself, you know, of course, being the the Milton Subotsky and and Max Rosenberg creation, the two of them, the the name means friend in Latin. Uh, they started out, I think they were friends when they started out, but John Dark, the guy who's the third producer on this movie, is uh, also one of the guys interviewed in this DVD that I was talking about. He says he doesn't think they ever liked each other, that they weren't friends, uh, they never liked each other. Now, whether he huh. also mentions that he personally didn't get along with Subotsky, so whether that's just his interpretation about someone he didn't like, who knows, you know. But certainly they broke up later, probably not a whole lot longer after this and went their separate ways. Subotsky would go on to make some more anthologies. You know, he made the uncanny mm-hmm. and the monster club and cat's eye. He was a producer on cat's eye. Oh really? That's the Stephen King, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't realize he was involved in that project too. Yeah. He's one of the, he's one of the producers on that, which is pretty cool. So he was definitely a fan of this. I mean, I think this portmanteau anthology uh, genre is, Definitely 100% up his alley. I think that was he was the one driving that ship. Sure. Oh, I bet. Now, I really do want to learn more about Sabotsky. I mean, he's an American. And this is something that I talk about whenever I introduce Horror Hotel or, or City of the Dead is that it's fascinating to me that Sabotsky is an American who went over to England, tried to get work with Hammer. It didn't work out. They didn't like what he wanted to do, but they ended up taking his ideas to kind of sort of get curse of frankenstein up and running so you have a little bit of a connection there but anyway milton sabosky's this american he goes over to england to shoot a movie called city of the dead that's set in a small american town cast completely by british people just <laughs> back and forth back and forth and i love that and it works it just works i need to learn more about milton sabosky i know that at one point he tried to get his hands on the robert e howard conan stories and wanted to do a version of those which would have been fascinating to see I don't know what he would have done with it, but it would have been cool to see Conan does it in, as a portmanteau series. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could see a series of short stories based on, on those. I mean, they're almost, some of them are like short tales. Pretty much. Pretty I mean, much. I definitely see that. Yeah. But I, I bet it would have been a feature. I bet they would have done it as a feature. But no, it's just, there's something about these portmanteau films that, I mean, you get in, you get a whole bunch of little short stories. And I think you and I have talked about this. That if there's a story that, ah, it's not really working for me, just wait 17 minutes and a new one will come on anyway. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And the, it's just, they work because of the wraparounds, though. The best ones have great wraparound stories. Yeah. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. This one, even like Tales from the Crypt. I like to, the wraparound in that with, with the Crypt Keeper. But, but all of them, they all have the, the great wraparound segments that make these work. Yeah, I, I would say that of the ones that I've seen and we've talked about, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is probably my favorite, but this one is a very, very close second. Mm-hmm. And I, I hadn't watched it until we decided we were going to talk about it here on the show. I very intentionally cool. avoided it until right before we recorded to watch it, and boom, it's right up there. I think for me, Tales from the Crypt and 
and Dr. Terrors are probably neck and neck for me of, of the amicus ones. I really like the house that drip blood a lot. Yeah. Uh, Vault of Horror was always a favorite. I saw it on video as a kid. I love Asylum. Asylum's great, too. Asylum is solid. Have you seen Torture Garden? I think so. Isn't uh, Burgess Meredith in that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's got another great cast, Burgess Meredith and um, Jack Palance. Some good people in that one, too. So it's yeah. it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, all of them have their strong point. I mean, there's not a bad one in the batch. There, there really isn't. And even if there is one that doesn't really hit you just right again just wait a handful of minutes and a new story will come on anyway monster club might actually be my favorite of of all of them oh that's true yeah 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 um (laughs) (laughs) you know i can't even think about that movie without hearing that now and that's your fault you know that right (laughs) totally of course so when i interviewed the lead singer of the the band that did that song i Mm -hmm. should have asked him why monsters rule okay Where'd that come from? But I did not. I should have asked him. Monsters rule okay. Can, can you that? still maybe do a follow-up with him? Ask him. You know. I'll, I'll, I'll read, email him. See if I can figure that out. So that was for an article, an interview that ran in Scary Monsters Magazine. Do you remember when that came out? I do not. Maybe four issues ago, maybe? Yeah, it's, it's not too long ago. Uh, you still have the column in Scary Monsters. I'm glad. Here, look at this segue, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so things that you're up to that people can follow up with you with. You've got a monthly column in Scary Monsters magazine. It's been going for a long time. Won a rondo, right? Yes, I've actually won the last three years in a row, believe you, it or not. You don't have to rub it in, man. <laughs> I, I only have one. Come on. I've got Rondo Envy over here. Come on. <laughs> Rondo Envy. <laughs> Wait, but you won that coveted multimedia category. I'll tell you what, that's got to be probably the most uh, highly contested category in the whole thing. I mean, that one, I mean, it's a catch all for so many different, you got podcasts, you got video uh, shows, you've got, I mean, there's all kinds of multimedia things involved. Yeah, and yeah, I know. Some of the people you're up against, I mean, have. <laughs> huge viewerships you know i know i know i know so <laughs> it's a well-deserved win for you for well sure. I, I appreciate that and i wasn't trying to dovetail this into you know a rondo thing but uh yeah i know i know <laughs> yeah. no but but your column well deserving of, of the rondos and you've got what now four rondos is that right i have seven. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. I have seven <laughs> rondos. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> well, but one, the last three for, for the column, which is great. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, you've got the rondo, the multiple rondo winning column <laughs> in, in Scary Monsters. Do we want to talk about the movie that might be coming out sometime next year? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a Dr. Gangrene anthology. It's going to be called Tales from Parts Unknown. It's a portmanteau anthology film, much like the one we just talked about. It is hosted, starring, whatever, Dr. Gangrene. And it's directed by Cameron McCaslin, who directs my my TV show. The plan is to be out in the spring. It was going to be out this year. We ran into some production delays and decided that we wanted to wait to release it in the spring because the the plan all along was to play this at some drive-ins and talk to theater owners and they're on board with it but since we could look like we weren't going to make it in time before they close for the fall mm-hmm. rather than rush to put it out uh we'd rather put it out when we can play it at the drive-in so we're going to wait till the spring take our time get everything exactly the way we want 
Tales from Parts Unknown is the title of the anthology that I, of short stories that I put out last, that was about two, three years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in 2013, believe it or not. So it's been longer ago than I thought. Uh, I guess it came out in 2014. So, God, five years ago. But it's uh, some a couple of the stories are from that book. Some some of them are new, but most written by me, one by Cameron. That should be coming out in the spring. Really looking forward to finally having this project done. We've talked about it a couple of times on Monster Kid Radio. Here. Yeah, it's come up a couple of times, and I'm glad that you guys are taking your time to make it, you know, what you want it to be. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's it's tempting, I know as a creative myself to just kind of put something out and be like, okay, it's, it's moving on to the next one. You guys have let this one brew for a while. And uh, much like a good cup of coffee, sometimes it takes a little while to brew. It's fine. Uh, let's hope we didn't leave it on the burner too long. So it's <laughs> <laughs> that burned undrinkable taste. Ah, no, nah, man, come on. <laughs> you know, and some of the shorts that are making their way into this portmanteau film, I've seen Tally Poe. Didn't that win a rondo? It did win a rondo. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of, and that's one of the ones that I have a rondo for actually. Yeah. So I've seen uh, at least that one, uh, and, and I've read the story. Obviously, I've got your collection of short stories, so I've read all of those as well. And having known you over the years, I've read a lot of your stuff, and I'm looking forward to it. I really hope it does come together sooner rather than later. And when it does, man. You know, I'm going to be all over it. Well, I appreciate it. It should be pretty good. I've just sent you a link right now to, you can see an advanced copy to one of the stories, the weird Western tale that's in there. Oh, so. yeah. There you go, listeners. Jealous yet? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Anything else coming up for you these days that we want to so, talk yeah, about? Wrapping up the, by the, it should be wrapped up by the time this airs. New show, the four right. episodes that's been going on a lot, doing personal appearances in October, which is a lot of fun. And um, looking at writing a little bit more. I was digging through some short stories that I found on the disc the other day that haven't been published anywhere. And I was thinking uh, where I was planning on writing, publishing a second collection. And so I started thinking, you know, I really need to get this finished because I've got a maybe four or five stories finished. Now I should go ahead and, and wrap up, write a bunch more and put this out. Wow. Kind of starting to work on that in my head a little bit. Oh, that's great, man. Momentum towards that. As we record this, I'm about to start shooting some stuff for my YouTube channel for okay. Halloween this year. I'm spotlighting for the 13, I'm going to do 13 episodes that will okay. be episodes about rats, movies with rats. Uh, I love some good nature attack movies. Those are a lot of fun. And I uh, decided instead of just nature attacks, I would spotlight rat movies. Huh. Are there enough rat movies to... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can think I, mean, of... I could have done 31, believe it or not. Really? I can think of like two. So, of course, you got Ben and you've got Willard. Willard. And there's two versions of Willard. So there's two episodes there. But, I mean, there are so many. I mean, I count Nosferatu as a rat movie. So okay. We're okay. talking about that. What about but Food of the Gods? Would that be one? Food of the Gods, Food of the Gods 2. I just watched the sequel the other day, which is really weird, set in an urban setting. So That one is weird. Nowhere, yeah. yeah, it's nowhere near as good, but it's interesting. I watched one the other day, a Japanese one called Nezula, Rat God. That was kind of crazy. There's Rats, Night of Terror. It's great. Have you ever seen that? I have not. You need, you need to watch that. Rats, Night of Terror is a lot of fun. 
I watched one called Hood Rats, which is an urban kind of thing set in the hood. And it's uh, it's really actually pretty good, believe it or not. Yeah, but I mean, just on and on. There's there's tons of rat movies. So huh. I had no idea. And and I found this British TV show. Each one was based on, I guess, I don't know if they were all animals. It's called Beasts, B-E-A-S-T-S. So each one was about different animals. But there was a rat episode of that. It was really interesting because you never saw the rats, but it was, it was all done like a stage, like a, like a stage play it was with kind of, uh, one shot. A lot of times steady, you know, shot with just the actors on talking about the terror of being surrounded by hordes of rats and you hear them in the walls and eating through things. And oh, it's wow. really, it's on YouTube. It's really good. It's called beasts. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So talking about rats. All right, then. All righty, then. <laughs> <laughs> Why rats? I don't know. I could have done bats just as easily or snakes or sharks or you name it. Yeti could have been anything, but I decided to focus on the little furry red-eyed guys. So <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'll make sure there's links in the show notes. What's the name of the YouTube channel? Dr. Dan Green. There you go. Look it up. Real easy to find. Let's get you back on the show uh, sooner rather than later. There's some more Amicus movies you got to talk about, man. Yeah, man. Let's do it. I mean, I, I don't know. Which one you want to do next? Maybe. I wouldn't mind dipping into Asylum again. I, I haven't seen that in a Asylum. while. Yeah, that'd be good. That that one's that one's got a cool twist to it. So, yeah, yeah. let's we'll talk about that. All it right. Takes place in a, in a madhouse. There you go. Let's do that. And then, of course, we got to do The House of Drip Blood at some point, too, because I know you've hosted that one before. I actually have a copy of it that you've yes. hosted here. So, yeah, we got to do that, that one, too. That was one of my favorite, favorite yeah. horror host moments because I had mentioned to my producer, I noticed ahead of time, I was looking ahead at the, at the calendar, and I noticed we were going to be broadcasting on Peter Cushing's birthday. And I said, you know, if there's any way we could get this, he and Christopher Lee are just a day apart, you know, and this movie stars both of them. And our movie actually, our show actually ran into the next day. So it actually broadcast on both their birthdays. But I said, if you ever see this movie, let me know. And sure enough, sure enough, it popped up on the list. He goes, Larry, you're not going to believe what popped up on our list of movies available. I went, what? He goes, The House of Drip Blood. Like, Are you kidding me? That's great. <laughs> I was so ecstatic. I don't know. There it was. So hey, there you go. Very cool, man. Well, before I let you go, there's something that we normally do at the top of the show that uh, we didn't do. Got to play yes. the Classic Five with you, man. Man, sounds good. Your card deck looks great, by the way. I know I said that when I saw them in person, but they're very, very well made, very professional. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I have a lot of fun with the with the deck, and there will eventually be more. I'm, I'm working on a new set, and I got to put out the... Oh, let's see, I've got a kaiju set I've got to put out. I'm not going to ask any kaiju questions, don't worry. I've got a kaiju just set I've got to put out. Just because I don't know them. That's, oh, that's, 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 that's why okay. I always say don't, don't put them in there because I'm just not that familiar with hey, them. Man, I, I know my I know audience, man. My favorite good. movies as a kid was Godzilla vs. Megalon, though. That was first horror movie probably I saw in the theater. So Wow. That's a fun one. Yeah, That's it probably is. my favorite Godzilla. That's my favorite era, you know? I think that 70s kind of almost cartoony Godzilla is just that's fun well, that's God, a fun era. Godzilla versus Megalon has Jet Jaguar so I'm all exactly. in exactly I love Jet Jaguar I named my fantasy football team the Jet Jaguars did you really? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I did. That's awesome. Well, well, we'll skip any kaiju cards because I've got some other ones that I want to run by you anyway. So the classic five, it's the deck of cards here. Five questions we're going to pull here and ask you some movie questions. Which movie do you prefer, this or that? It's not trivia. It's just kind of a conversation starter. And as if you couldn't tell, Larry and I really don't have a problem starting conversations with each other. But still, it's always fun. You're ready to play. Yes. All right, here we go. Card number one. What's your favorite Mario Bava film, Black Sunday or Black Sabbath? Like Sabbath. Yeah. Our anthology, baby, yes. Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a Vordalac, Black Sabbath. As a matter of fact, the Belcourt had asked me for our 12 Hours of Terror if I knew any older anthology films that were legitimately creepy. Yeah? I said, well, yeah, man. Black Sabbath would fit that perfectly. I don't think they got it, but, I mean, if they could have, that would have been a good one to show. And Boris Karloff, man. It's the yeah. Vertilac. The Vertilac. It's so cool. Yes. Like the closest he ever came to playing a vampire. <laughs> it's great. And he is a vampire in it. Yeah, you know, pretty much. Pretty up. much. Yeah. I have been going through what we've been doing lately. My son and I are going through all the thriller episodes in order. Oh, watch nice. So we haven't gotten to where, you know, there's still thrillers at this point. Any of the horror stuff yet. We're just on disc one. But I love, love, love that series so much. It's great. Last year for the Halloween virtual crash, we showed the thriller version of uh, Pigeons from Hell. I mean, it's yes. just so good. So it, good. It is. I mean, that anthology series is the closest to a live action Weird Tales magazine of any of them. Yeah. And you know, they used a lot of Weird Tales source material. And I think some of it was even written by some of the Weird Tales folks or certainly based on Algernon Blackwood and uh, Robert Howard and, you know, I don't know if there was sure. ever a Lovecraft, but there were def- definitely Clark Ashton Smith. I think there was one in there from him and, you know, different ones. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's good stuff. It really is good stuff. It's, it's amazing. So, yeah. OK, cool, cool. All right. Card number two. In your mind, what's the most underrated classic werewolf film? Underrated classic werewolf film. Well, underrated and well what does what is a classic i mean i well, guess that's, you gotta that's up to you to decide determine you know? what a classic is i mean yeah. in my mind what is the most underrated werewolf film um so frankenstein meets the wolfman is what comes to mind but it's not really underrated i think people rate that pretty pretty highly let's say the hideous sun demon because oh it, a man who loved with fierce, demanding passion. A monster who ran wild in a reign of terror that spread murder in his trail. thing that went wrong in the secret atomic laboratory afflicted him with the most hideous curse ever visited on man, forcing him to cower in the darkness like a hunted animal. 
for one touch of the sun's bright rays transformed him into the reptilian Jekyll and Hyde monstrosity who couldn't control his lust to kill. It is a werewolf movie. I mean, it really is. But it does the twist of he changes during the daytime. And I love that movie so much. It is so underrated. It's a great it, movie. It really is. It really is. And you're right. It does have, I guess it is structured like a werewolf film. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Huh. The blaze of the noonday sun turns him into a hideous beast. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So cool. All right. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. Card number three. What four monsters would be on your Mount Rushmore of monsters? Mm, Frankenstein, Wolfman, uh, probably Mummy. It's always that fourth one. And uh, no Dracula? Dracula. Dracula, absolutely. Okay. Frankenstein, Dracula. Yeah, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, went blank on Dracula for a second. Dracula has to be up there, of course. Frank Sun, Dracula, Wolfman. Those are those are top three. And then that fourth one, though, you know, Mummy. I could see going with Phantom of the Opera there just as easily. Mm. I love Phantom. You know, I bought at at a uh, costume shop in Louisville just this last week. I bought a um, some die cuts of some Universal monster faces, and they had oh wow the Lon Chaney. Phantom in there, which is interesting because the Universal ignores that movie. It's not on any of the box sets. They almost act like, and I think it's because it's public domain and they don't want to even dabble any right rights issues at all. But they almost act like it's not part of their pantheon when really it's the greatest of all the the Phantom movies. That makeup is just phenomenal. So, I mean, anyway. it's it's legendary, and I I think you're right. I think when Universal is trying to like fill out something <laughs> they include phantom uh but very rarely do you see it mentioned by them in the same breath as like dracula and frankenstein and the like so yeah when they do include something it's usually the um claude rains version which is cool but sure it's not it's not you know it's not lon chaney all right uh let's see fourth question fourth card what classic monster movie is a must watch for you on halloween oh frankenstein it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein! Don't touch that! I love that movie. Although Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is is close to it, also that's a favorite of mine. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and so either one of those movies. But yeah, usually Frankenstein. I just have to watch that. I love how deadpan serious it is throughout. There's not not any sense of humor at all. There's no levity until maybe the that final moment uh, with all the nurses to the house of Frankenstein. A little toast at the end. <laughs> it's kind of goofy, but. It's just a great Halloween movie. 
Right on. All right. And then the fifth card, final question. Who is your favorite classic Scream Queen? Classic Scream Queen? Probably Faye Ray. She's kind of the original, right? Yeah. She's great. I love me some Evil and Anchor, so, you know. I do, too. I do, too. Yeah, that's, I mean, you can't go wrong with either one of those choices as far as, I mean, do you include Creature from the Black Lagoon in that? I mean, if you do, well, that's a fine then, choice, too. Obviously, obviously. Julius, <laughs> can't go wrong with that, either. And I think you could. So, Faye, everything I've seen her in, she's so talented, so beautiful, so, and, you know, great scream. She, she, she's great. So, yeah, I'll go with Faye Ray. Okay. All right. Well, that was the Classic Five. Thanks for playing, man. Good deal. Thanks for doing it. Right on. So we'll have you on again to talk about Asylum and uh, what was the other one? Uh, the House of Drip Blood. We'll right. do those at some point. You know, by the time this episode goes out, I'm sure the series will have won its course because I probably won't be playing this until November. So I'm sure it went well. But since we're recording beforehand, I want to say good luck with the TV series. I, I, I can't wait to hear how it goes over. People of your area uh, in the Nashville area are so lucky to get Dr. Green Green on TV in the month of October. That's so Thank cool. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. It's just, it's fun to be back. It's good to be doing this. And it's something that uh, for the 20th anniversary, it's good to, to do something to celebrate it. And, you know, if it goes over well, we'll do it again next year. There's been a little resurgence of horror hosts of late. It's great to see. There's a lot of folks out there doing good work. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to see so much, uh, you know, it's like we talked about earlier, rising tide lifts all boats, you know, it's, it's a success for everyone out there. It's good for all of us. And, you know, we got Joe Bob Briggs back doing shows on shutter, which are fantastic. You got Svenguli doing the national thing. You got folks on Roku, you got guys on the internet, you got cable access folks out there. It's just a good time, man, for hosting. It really is. It really is. As if I need one more thing to add to my list of things I want to do. Um, <laughs> I'd love to, you know, it's inspiring. It's like, man, you guys look like you're having so much fun. Yeah. You know? I mean, you pretty much are doing that anyway, just not a video version of it. Oh, don't give me any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> as if I, like I said, as if I need one more thing to do. Oh, right. Man. Oh, it's man. good to be busy. It keeps it, me happy. It is. It is. And you know, speaking of which, I've got another recording I've got to get ready for in the next 20 minutes. So who are you talking I, to next? Uh, I actually, it's not for a show, but I do need to talk to Josh Kennedy this weekend. So, all right. Well, tell him I said hi. I am so very lucky that I've got so many amazing friends that I've made through just being a monster kid on the internet. There's just something special about this community. And I'm so glad that Dr. Gang Green is part of it. So thank you, Larry, for being part of the show. It was amazing to meet you in person, finally, at last year's Monster Bash. And I hope to see you at a convention down the line, you know, in the future, just because there's never enough time just to hang out. Anyway, I want to thank you for being part of the show. Listeners, check out drgangreen.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. There's also links in the show notes to the playlist that he's got set up for Rattober. That's his rat movie countdown, as well as Dr. Gangreen's Sanitarium. Now, this episode is going out after the first episode of that show aired locally on his television station and was put up on YouTube for a week. So you won't be able to get the movie as part of episode one, but the segments will still be there. And the segments, I mean, come on, that's really what we watch horror hosted programming for anyway, right? So you can check that out. You can also check out the public domain films that he's showing as part of the new series, the limited series. And if you like it, give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel and 
well, we just want to support our own, you know? It's awesome when monster kids do good. Oh, and as I was editing that segment, I realized I really kind of rode that whole Rondo Award thing. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, and I'm doing it now. I also realized that I laughed a lot during that conversation. I tried to edit a lot of it out, and I don't know how successful I was. I apologize. I know it's not very professional to be laughing like an idiot through most of the conversation, but the bottom line was I was just having a blast. I was having so much fun. I hope you were laughing along with me. Thanks again, Doc, for being part of the show. Willard is the story of a boy with some very unusual friends. Look at the rats. Willard takes good care of them. Yes. Look at the rats. And they will do anything for Willard. Tear him up! No, Willard! No, 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 Willard! No, 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 Willard! Where your nightmares end, Willard begins. From Cinerama releasing, rated GP, all ages, parental guidance. Willard is the one movie you should not see alone. This time, he's not alone. There's millions of them. They're eating us alive down there. Ben and his army of rats are on the way. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Before we wrap up the show, remember when I said there was something else I wanted to mention, but I couldn't remember what it was? It's about the Monster Kid Radio Tee Public Shop. Now, I want to say thank you to everybody who went in and bought their own Monster Kid Radio is a Spook Show t-shirt using the artwork that I used for last week's episode image. It's a t-shirt that you can get through Tee Public. There is a link to the Tee Public Monster Kid Radio shop in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. But as soon as I posted that, so many of you went in and snatched up your own shirt. Now, I don't know if people have actually received their shirts yet. If you got one, I'd love to see it on you, man. Take a picture. Send me a selfie. I'll put it on the page and let people check it out and see just how cool you are and how they can be cool like you by buying their own copy of the shirt. That came real close to over-promoting, didn't it? What I'm getting at is just I appreciate all the support because it supports the show. You know, I get a little bit of money per t-shirt sold and it it just really helps out. Also, there's a few other shirt designs that are relatively new that make great Halloween presents. Is that a thing? Maybe it is. You can give it out to people who are trick-or-treating. Give them the trick-or-treat and chill red t-shirt. Or you can even pick up your own copy of the book that Vincent Price is reading in the Tingler Fright Effects induced by injection of Lysergic Acid LSD-25, a preliminary report. You can get your own copy of that as well. Again, link in the show notes to the Tea Public Shop. I know next month is the month of Thanksgiving, but... I'm in the Halloween spirit. The Halloween mood puts me in that mindset of wanting to thank everybody for helping me to kind of do my Halloween thing, 365. You know, I, I it, it's always Halloween in my heart, you know? 
but it wouldn't be if I didn't have the amazing support of you guys and gals and the segments that keep coming in. You know, Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and just a real quick comment on that. You know, at the beginning when he was kind of going through the different names and titles that Peter Cushing has, my personal favorite was Death's Deputy. Peter Cushing, Death's Deputy. I wouldn't watch a TV series of that. You know, see him running into town and, and yeah, just sounded awesome. And Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Story, I love it when comic books kind of go that meta route in a clever way. That story sounded amazing. And then for Dr. Tongue, oh, wait a minute. Um, oh, okay, you know what? Here's his bit. presents Dr. Tong's World of Monster Collectibles. Spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. Hey, all you kids out there in Monster Kid Radio Land. This is Mark Dr. Tong Peterson saying, I got nothing. Have a great week. Really, Mark? Really? Actually, Mark was busy, busy, busy this past week recovering from a toy show that he did this past weekend. And from what I understand, he did pretty well, so awesome. But that didn't leave a lot of oomph for doing a segment this week, and that's okay. No big deal. If he does one for next week, I'll include it in the mix. And if not, well, we'll do it the week after that. Or the week after that. Or really, whatever works for Dr. Dung. Despite there really not being a world of monster collectibles this week, I'll still make sure there's a link to Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net where you can find links to everything else that I mentioned here in the show, including links to Amazon, where if you want to pick up copies of anything that you heard about in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, use those Amazon links because it really does help support the show. So the Disney comic books, the movie from Beyond the Grave, both the DVD and the Blu-ray, Dr. Gang Green's book, it's all there. If you're shopping at Amazon anyway, I'm trying to make it easy for you. And speaking of those comic books, again, big thanks to Tracy and Scott for having me be part of this big crossover that we did for the Dracula and Frankenstein a la Disney. That was a lot of fun. I've been wanting to collaborate with Disney Indiana for a while now. It's been too long since we've done kind of a back and forth crossover thing like that. So that was a real treat to make happen. Big thanks to Tracy and Scott for working their schedule around mine. There is usually a three hour time zone difference between the two of us. So trying to line things up when they're working and I'm not, and they've got a different work schedule than I'm used to. Even the uh, bottom line, we beat the time zone, made it happen. And that was all because of Scott and Tracy. Check them out at Disney Indiana. Dot com for all of your Disney needs and to hear me talk about Donald Duck as Dr. Frankenstein with Scott and Tracy. There is a sentence that uh, I never thought I would say. Anyway. You know what else is over at our website? Our contact information. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you want to talk about anything you heard about in this episode of the podcast or any of the previous episodes, or you just want to talk about what's coming up for you on Halloween, you want to call in your own happy Halloween messages, well, that's how you do it. And I'll make sure you are included in a future episode of MKR. Speaking of the future, next week's episode, there will be an episode that goes out on Halloween. There's no way I'm missing a Halloween episode. I mean, come on. <laughs> really? No, <clears throat> no, come on. 
there will be an episode that comes out on Halloween Day. So if you're in a position to where you can listen to a podcast that day, it'll be there for you. If you're in a position to where you can actually watch something on your computer, smartphone, tablet, or maybe even your television because you can get the Twitch app for Xbox and probably for PlayStation. I'm not really sure. I don't have a Sony PlayStation. But if you're in a position to be able to watch something, Halloween Day starting at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, I'm going to be starting the 2019 Monster Kid Radio Halloween Monster Movie Marathon Watch Along on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Make sure you're there at 9 a.m. because I'm going to kick off a 13-hour block of movies, shorts, commercials, trailers, all sorts of just fun Halloween fun. It's going to be a blast. I'm really looking forward to it. Stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net for more information about the Monster Kid Radio Halloween Monster Movie Marathon Watch Along on Twitch because I'll be announcing a schedule, a guide, so to speak, of everything that's going to be coming out so that you know what's going to be playing when. The reason we're doing this on Twitch is because there is a chat room. There will be a live chat going all bloody day. It's going to be amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. And then the next day, I'll sleep. Well, not too long, because that's actually when National Novel Writing Month starts, and I'm going to be doing NaNoWriMo this year, which means I probably ought to start writing the novel. It's a whole different conversation for probably a whole different podcast or blog or YouTube series or something. But if you're a writer and you're doing NaNoWriMo, I'd love to be your buddy. And if you're on the NaNoWriMo site, you know what that means. But I'm digressing, which means we probably ought to wrap this up by letting you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Calling Dr. Gang Green. That belongs to the Gino Royd experience. It comes from their album, themes from an imaginary spook show you can pick that up online just follow the links in the show notes big thanks to them for letting us play the song on the show beginning of the show you heard the instrumental version of the song we're going to go out on the non-instrumental version of the song well i mean there's an instrumental but there's also lyric you know what i mean my name is Derek m cook talk to everybody next week ciao (laughs) 